0: Okay, good evening, it's good to be with you all this evening as we look again at a couple chapters in our book, um, Distinctive Beliefs of the Anabaptists, and uh, look at our heritage, hopefully understand a little bit better where we're at today, how we got to this point, I was happy to see that we picked this book when when there was a choice of a couple books. I saw this when I was hoping it would uh, get picked uh, because I've often wondered about the differences between our church, the the Mennonite church, and other church traditions. There's so many varieties of of beliefs and practices, and and, uh, if you had to pick out the differences, uh, what, what would you say? Um, we can hear somebody talking, and and, uh, and we can think, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. Um, and then they describe how they do something a little different, and, and we wonder, well, why don't, why don't we do things like that? <clears throat> so what's the distinction in uh, you know, our, our practice, our, our heritage? That's uh, what this book is looking at. Um, so we... Looked at uh, some other areas in, in the chapters before. So we'll look at uh, two areas this evening the ordinances and nonconformity. And just to <clears throat> um, start us off, I, I remember talking to an Episcopal priest in Cherry Creek, and it was a funeral, and we were talking a little bit about uh, this different churches and different ways of doing things, and he was talking about how their church and the Catholic church were starting to reconcile some differences, and I forget how it came up, but I, I was talking about the, the differences in, in our church, and I said, well, our church basically just tries to, to live out the Bible, and uh, didn't have a very thought-out answer, and uh, usually when you have to give an answer on the spot, it's, it's uh, yeah not thought out uh, like you want it to be and uh, I thought about that a little more and uh, I realized that you know it's actually not that bad of an answer and the, the difference is, is basically a focus uh, on orthodoxy or orthopraxy and it's just fancy words for right belief orthodoxy means the right belief you, you believe the right things and And orthopraxy means you you, uh, have the right practice or or conduct. And uh, a lot of churches focus on what you believe. We believe this. And they they have statements of faith written out and very detailed on on what they believe about God. And and, uh, it's important to believe the right things. But I think uh, as important, it needs to be balanced with uh, right actions and uh, works that, that demonstrate that belief I think thinking the early church didn't have a whole lot of statements of faith they didn't detail exactly what they believed about God as much as we wish they would have um, but for them it was more of a, a way of life uh, you know, they believed the right things but, but they didn't uh, feel it necessary to write everything down and make sure they had all their Theology straight, and that came as the, the need arose. Um, but uh, I think the same was true somewhat for the for early Anabaptists. Uh, they didn't have a lot of statements of faith. I think the Schleheim confession, confession uh, highlighted differences that they had with the Catholic doctrine, but again it was it was living out um, what they believed and uh, that was the main distinction that they had. Um, so I decided to think, is that true for us today? Do we live out what we believe uh, more than just believing the right things? So as so we look into these two chapters here, the ordinances and, and nonconformity, uh, I had to think there's, there's a theme that kind of ties these two together, and that's... Um, a high view of scripture, the view that the Bible is the final authority on on, uh, our lives, what we do, what we read in the Bible should be taken seriously, and that's what the early Anabaptists did, and that's uh, what we want to do as well. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the ordinances, Um, most every church has these in 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 some way or other they might call them different names and the the amount of them uh, might might be different from church to church Uh, but for our church tradition anabaptist tradition there's um seven ordinances that we do and uh, they're listed out in the in the book there Uh, these are um, practices that are prescribed in scripture in the bible and they symbolize a deeper inner reality. Um, And that inner reality needs to be there first. It's not through the practice. It's not the the practice that that brings that, um, but rather it's an outworking of that. And it's a little bit different from the the Catholic view. I think they would have a a sacramental view. And it's basically there's a a saving merit doing these catholics actually have a very similar list of of ordinances or or sacraments i think uh, four of them are the same Um, and if i understand right they they see it as as a channel of grace um, by by doing different things and and they are made more holy and drawn closer to god Um, baptism for example was seen as as being part of salvation and with, with that view in mind, they would baptize babies. They baptized infants uh, thinking that that would uh, save them uh, or, or in some way uh, make them safe. And then later on, they would have what's, what's called a confirmation uh, as a teenager or adult where they would reaffirm those, those vows that their parents had made for them. So the sacramental view is a little bit different than, than we would, would see it. Uh, We would see it as as a symbol that reflects uh, a reality inside, an inner truth that's that's already there, uh, demonstrated by the practice that we're doing. And it doesn't mean that they're meaningless. You you could say that these are only symbols. They don't do anything, and therefore they don't mean anything. But I think rather that their value comes from the way that they posture our hearts and the, the way that, uh, they help us better understand spiritual truths and relationships. It becomes more felt and, and real. It's easy to look at some of these practices and say, you know, I don't, I don't need that to live as a Christian. That doesn't do anything. There's no value there. But I think if that's our attitude We're already missing out on some of the blessing uh, that these practices can give. They can be very meaningful, um, but uh, they can also be meaningless, dead and and meaningless as well, but they don't have to be. So the seven ordinances, as we know them, were practiced by the early Anabaptists, excuse me, but it wasn't until Uh, the early 1900s, that they were kind of organized and and gathered together as the ordinances. And that was uh, Daniel Kaufman that would have done that. He was a church leader. In that time, he did a lot of writing and and organizing different doctrines. And uh, most of them are, are shared by other church traditions, but there's three in particular that are distinctively Uh, anabaptist and and uh, it's not totally but for the most part and that's uh, the feet washing the head covering and the holy kiss and this comes from uh, basically a straightforward reading of the New Testament and like I said it's a high emphasis given on the commands that we read in in the New Testament and there's varying views on on how to read the letters of Paul and the other letters and there's a lot of people that choose to read the letters as as church specific meaning that they deal only with uh, specific issues in specific churches and that gives them the liberty to maybe overlook some things that uh, they see as cultural Uh, they say that was that was for for that church Whereas Anabaptists historically would, would see all of Scripture as, including the letters of Paul, as, as being inspired by God. And therefore, what is contained in them is applicable for all traditions and, and all cultures. So there's a lot more that that could be said on that, but I'll, I'll let it at that. And I think I'll just go through each of these uh ordinances as, as they're written down here and, and talk a little bit um, about each one the the symbol that it, that it gives uh, the first one mentioned there's baptism and that is a public identification of a believer as a jesus follower and it's identifying with his church as family and as I mentioned before, baptism. This was one of the the main differences uh, with the Catholic Church uh, back in the beginnings of, of the Anabaptist Church um, and, and also the other reformers, the, the Protestants. Um, and that was uh, believers' baptism. And that's actually where the, the name Anabaptist comes from. Uh, these people were baptized as babies and, and uh, now they're wanted to get baptized again so they were they were called the rebaptizers, and uh, that was because of this uh, symbolic view uh, of baptism and uh, that's uh, where the the interchange has to come first. There needs to be um, a, a, a transformation before uh, the baptism takes place and, and that's a, a choice that a person makes which rules out infant baptism and uh, this is where believers' baptism was started, uh, at least at the time of the Reformation. So it's a symbol of new life in Christ. And, and as far as the way that we baptize, um, I don't have all the details, but I heard uh, that the first Anabaptist baptism service happened where there was a, uh, a fountain and they, they dipped water and, and baptized each, each person there at the meeting. And maybe I have a few details off there, I'm not sure, but uh, maybe that's where we get our tradition for pouring, uh, for baptism, I'm, I'm not sure. But, but that's, that's the, the way that we do baptism and, and uh, with viewing baptism as a symbol, it's not as important how it's done, but more so um, that the, the interchange that it, it symbolizes is there that's it's not necessarily a uh, ritual that has to be done in the right way to be valid um, looking at it as, as a symbol that's the first one baptism uh, the next one is communion and this is a ceremony where we eat and drink together and we remember Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and we see this as being a symbol which was different um, in the time of the reformers different from the catholic belief of transubstantiation which is a, just a fancy word for for uh, the idea that the emblems actually change into the the body uh, and blood of, of Jesus uh, the priest says some words and it and it uh, changes the actual body of Jesus and and uh, we wouldn't see it as as that. We would see it as a symbol and uh, rather as a time when we posture our hearts in a way that reflects the work on the cross and, and the victory over death that has been won. But we don't see any significance in the emblems themselves, but rather what it does for us in remembering what Jesus did in the frame of mind that it, Uh, puts us in a time of internal reflection and it can be very meaningful uh, in in that way the next one is feet washing this is uh, one of those distinctive practices that not many churches do and it's something that Jesus would have instituted in John 13 uh, at the, the first communion, the last supper, um, he would have washed his disciples' feet, and he, he did the job of a servant, and Jesus says that we should follow his example in doing this to, to our brothers, um, wash each other's feet, and that, that's where we get this practice from, and again, it's not worth anything in and of itself, but rather it's what it symbolizes, and it's a a truth that should already be there, and that's a willingness to serve each other, and uh, to take a, a humble position in front of our brother or sister, and it reminds us of our calling to serve, and again, guiding our heart posture to where it needs to be. The next one is the Christian woman's veiling, the head covering. And this is discussed in 1 Corinthians 11. And we had a Sunday school lesson about this recently. Um, And this is a symbol that affirms God's headship order, which is the woman's covered head for prayer and the man's uncovered head. Uh, And so as a symbol, it does not convey, convey grace to you or make you a better person. Uh, but rather reveals an inner reality of, of agreeing with God's design for headship. And like he says in the book, if, if, uh, if you give the text a fair consideration, some people say that the, the hair is the covering, um, but uh, if you read through <clears throat> the text and uh, look at what he's, he's actually saying, um, it's, it's, it's not just the hair, but it's something else, and you can find that from, from the way he words it. So I believe uh, that this is God's ideal, that God wants us uh, to do this, and we can receive a blessing in, in following that. Christian Salutation is the next one, uh, The Holy Kiss, and it's another uniquely distinctive practice that's rarely found outside Anabaptist churches. And it's an instruction that's given uh, several times throughout the letters uh, of Paul. And it's usually in the conclusion, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. A kiss of charity. I think Peter words it that way. And that's uh, basically a token of love for the brotherhood. And uh, it's not As much a symbol as it is a demonstration of commitment and love and and unity when we practice the the holy kiss and then marriage and uh, this one is a little bit different than the others um, because it's not for everyone we're not required to to get married <clears throat> but it is a symbol, and, uh, which falls in line with what the ordinances are. The ordinances are symbols, and marriage is, is a symbol as well that reflects the relationship between Jesus and the church, us as the church. And Paul brings this out uh, very clearly in Ephesians 5. It's, it's a, a parallel there of husbands and wives uh, mirroring that, that relationship Um, of Christ and his bride, the church. The picture of a Christian marriage is that of exclusive love, commitment, and faithfulness between one man and one woman for life. And that symbolizes the design for the relationship that uh, Jesus desires with his church. So it's... um, the ordinance of marriage, and then the last one is anointing with oil, and this one's referenced in James, last chapter of James. People who are seriously sick are to call for the elders of the church. Um, it's it's uh, the way it's worded is, is something serious, and uh, the elders of the church come and they'll have a time of, of prayer and confession and uh, anointing with oil. And this is an ordinance that the Catholic Church would do as well, uh, typically at the end of life. And it's an ordinance because the oil that is used is a symbol of God's healing power. And it's not the oil that we look to for healing, but God's power um, and and the oil is is a symbol of that. So that would be uh, considered an ordinance for that. So these are the Seven ordinances that we would recognize as as practices that are laid out in the Bible for us to follow. And each of these symbolizes uh, a deeper inner reality that is demonstrated through a certain practice that we do. And it's it's part of how we live out our faith in, in our church community by being faithful to what we read in the Bible. So I went over that um, pretty fast, and I, I know I didn't cover everything. Is there any, any thoughts or any discussion that anybody has uh, before we move on? That's what we believe, yeah. Yeah. hmm Any other thoughts to add? Questions? All right, let's move on into the next chapter. Chapter about nonconformity. And nonconformity comes from the belief that we, as Christians, as part of the universal church, should be distinct and uh, different from those who are not part of the church. There's a different operating system, you could say, that wires us different, um, and therefore those in the church are. Going to behave and, and think different. And the basis of this comes from Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's written in, in the beginning of the chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we are told here, don't be conformed to the world. We shouldn't be taking the shape of uh, uh, the forces uh, of, of, rather, we shouldn't be taking the shape of the popular culture that is trying to push us into, into that mold and yeah, if we're conformed to something, we are taking the shape of the mold that, that something is, is uh, being pressed into. So, not being conformed, there's a difference. And what does that mean? What, what is that supposed to look like? Uh, it's a question that, that many people have tried to answer and I'll do my best to, to work through it here as we look at nonconformity. <clears throat> so it's, it's a command in the negative it says don't be conformed and the reason for this is that we are citizens of a heavenly country uh, we are in the world but not of the world and Steve referenced the verse from James it says whoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God and that means if we want to be a friend of God we're going to be butting heads with the world because the shaping forces that are in the world are going to try to mold us after a certain pattern. And we're not supposed to let that happen. So what is the world? It's a term that we use frequently. uh, But what does it really mean? What, What does it mean to not be conformed to the world? And I think sometimes it's refer, used to refer to anything we disagree with in, in our society. That's um, it's something worldly. Um, but I think more so, it refers to a value system that dictates what's important to us, what we should be focusing on, and uh, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. I had to describe the world's value system um, it would be putting personal pleasure and comfort on a high priority and it, it values family and friends as long as they don't do anything too bad to us strangers and, and people different from us are, are not quite as important they're often viewed with suspicion and it's mainly self-centered, looking at how I can work the system to benefit me. How can I gain the attention and admiration of others? <clears throat> so I'm sure there's, there's more you could add to that. It's kind of what I see as the world, that we are not supposed to be conformed to. And in a general sense, that's the operating system of, of those who are Conformed to the world and and it shows up different ways for different people. But I like how he he frames it in in the book here. He says that uh, it doesn't start with non-conformity, but rather um, the first step is being set apart to God and conformed to Christ. As as Paul says in Romans, Romans 8, uh, we need to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus. And that's where the real change will happen. He gives a quote from the early Swiss brethren. <clears throat> and he says, they said, the true church is separated from the world and is conformed to the nature of Christ. If a church is yet at one with the world, we cannot recognize it as a true church So they were pushing back against the idea of a a state church where everybody in a particular area was automatically a part of that church. And they were saying, you need to be able to tell a difference. And you you will be able to tell a difference. Uh, The true church is those who live out what is written in the Bible. And it starts with being separated to God and living out the principles that we read about in the Bible. And nonconformity will flow from that um, because the way that Jesus gives, uh, the we're to be conformed to, stands in stark contrast to the world and the principles and values that, that go along with that. So, in a way, nonconformity is a result or a product rather than the primary goal or aim. And he brings out three different areas of nonconformity, which is good to remember. A lot of times when we think about nonconformity, it's you know, in the, the way that we dress and, and our appearance. Um, but it's more than just that, it includes um, as well how we act and how we think. So the three areas that he gives are brotherly love, humility, and personal appearance. <clears throat> so, non-conformity in love. Uh, and I had to think about that one for a little bit. It's not something you hear about a lot, but it's true. And it's good to remember uh, the Christian love that we are called to is distinct from normal love. Um, it's more than loving those who love us. You know, Jesus talks about that. If you love those who love you, what, what reward is that? You know, there's, there's, there's nothing special about that because that's normal. Um, Jesus calls us to a higher standard of love and a couple of weeks ago we had a Sunday school lesson on 1 Corinthians 13 and as you, you read through that chapter you, you realize that this is not an ordinary kind of love. This is a, a radical love that, that Paul describes and the early Anabaptists uh, demonstrated this pretty clearly. Um, they cared for each other. They took care of each other, and they they uh, cared about other people's spiritual condition. They loved others that they didn't know. You you hear about them preaching in the streets and just being very evangelistic, um, and even love for their enemies. They were not conformed to the the normal kind of love the next area is humility and that's another area that we don't think about as as quick but if you think about the mold of the world, what what is uh, the world trying to push us into the the way of thinking the the shaping force of our society humility doesn't have a big part uh, in that but this is something that the, the Anabaptists practiced and valued, and a word that encompasses this trait is Gelassenheit, which we had heard about here before. Um, it's one of those words that's hard to translate, uh, but it's a couple different words that, that uh, give it meaning, serenity, and yieldedness, and humility, or just a, a few of those, and I've heard that this was a really big part of Anabaptist churches throughout uh, the 1800s, and then it was gradually lost um, in the 1900s. One way that they showed this was their gaze. Um, I was reading a book talking about this, and they said often their gaze would be downward um, as, as a sign of, of deference, showing humility. And they, they incorporated silence into their lives. Before and after meals, there'd be a time of silence. And during their services, they would have, have silence. And, and that was to reinforce this this virtue of yieldedness and humility. And they wanted to keep that as a priority. Most times, an ethnic group is proud of, of one of their members, um, getting a prominent position, or, or gaining national recognition. But the, the Mennonites weren't like that. If they actually had words to describe people who, who climbed the social rank too far, uh, they were said to have gone high, or fallen off. So they didn't put a lot of value in pursuing anything further than, than a humble profession. They, they, they really valued humility in in all areas of life and and this is our heritage and we need to ask ourselves if we have lost our non-conformity in the areas of humility I think it's easier than we might think to to uh, allow ourselves to be molded into the shape of society around us and this is one area that's essentially opposite from the world's value system And then the last um, category of, of nonconformity is, is appearance, personal appearance, uh, what we wear, and this is almost an outworking of humility in some ways, uh, not wanting to draw attention to ourselves. There's different principles about um, what what we ought to wear, how we ought to dress, in the Bible, and. Uh, it's distinction in gender, simplicity, and modesty both in concealing and also modesty in, in cost. Not, not showing how wealthy you are by, by wearing expensive clothes. And in following these principles, we're going to be going against the mold of the world. The uh, mold of, of, of the world would push for elegance and drawing attention to yourself, and making a statement with your clothes. But as as we aim to be conformed to Christ and follow his example of humility, we're going to be different in what we wear as an outworking of that, following those principles. Our ultimate goal is is not to look different. And there's there's people like that. They just want to be different. I'm going to be original, not like everybody else and and uh, they often tend to be the trend setters people just branching out doing something different but that 's not the reason that we are different, but rather it's from living out principles in the Bible and and being faithful to to what we read about how we ought to dress there's a few quotes in the book about early Anabaptists and and their testimony of of what they wore. Their neighbors looked at them and and, uh, they noticed. A Lutheran theologian said, Mennonites shun immodesty in dress, swearing, insincerity, intemperance, immorality and discord. There's another person that said, their life was irreproachable. They shunned costly clothing. Their walk and conversation were quite humble. So I don't know how unique their dress habits were, uh, but it was uh, enough that, that others around them noticed a the difference. They, they picked up on, on something different. And that's from following uh, biblical principles um, in, in what they wore. So these areas are, are a part of our heritage, part of what has made us distinct in the past and even today, they will make us distinct because of that difference in, in operating system, which is spirit living inside of us. It's what it comes down to, and I think it's good to step back and, and look at the, the different distinctions, and to think about uh, why am I doing this? Why do I believe this way? And uh, to realize that you know we, we are different, and being different helps us keep in mind that we are strangers and pilgrims. We are citizens of, of a heavenly country. Exiles living in Babylon, as, as someone I heard put it. So being different uh, can help us keep that mindset and maybe it can help us from becoming too comfortable. Uh, I think when we become too comfortable and, and prosperous, that usually leads to spiritual decline Anybody have thoughts on this chapter here, nonconformity? I know I didn't say everything that could be said, um, but hopefully. Um, we were encouraged as we look back into, into our heritage, to what our ancestors have, have given to us. And I'm sure a lot of us at times wonder why we're, we're doing something a certain way. And we look at other traditions and we see them doing things a little bit differently and, and we hear their reasoning, and it's easy to get confused. So I think it's helpful to look back into our past and examine how we got to this point, how we got to where we're at today. And we often see that there were uh, conversations about some of the exact same questions that we deal with today that people talked about generations before. So that's why I'm excited to be going through this book and and, uh, hopefully understanding a little bit better where we're at today and uh, the distinctiveness of, of uh, Anabaptist tradition. So I think I will close and uh, yeah, why don't we all stand and have a word of prayer.